0: The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.TheWellHastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, says this: "After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There, he found some disciples, and he said to them, "'Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?' And they said, "'No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit.'" And he said, "'Into what then were you baptized?' And they said, "'Into John's baptism.'" And Paul said, "'John, baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who was to come after him, that is Jesus.'" On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And Lord, uh, I think it's just good to begin by asking for your help this morning. Lord, there is a there's an awful lot in this passage that seems confounding and maybe confusing and even alarming as we read it. Um, seems like a weird passage. So, Father, we ask for your help. Um, ask that you would help to remove any confusion, um, help to remove any hindrance to us hearing from you through your word. We need you to speak to us, and we ask that you would do so. Father, you've promised in your word um, to speak. Uh, You promised that your word, when preached, um, that it would go forth, that it would produce uh, many things that would edify us and glorify you. And so, God, we ask that you would do just that. Um, Lord, all in all, we ask that uh, you would make the preaching of your word clear. Lord, that those that are gathered here that do not yet know you uh, would hear the gospel clearly and come to know you. And for those that do know you, that the gospel would be preached clearly so that we might be strengthened. We trust that you'll do that and then some. In Jesus' name and everybody said, amen, amen. Hey, listen, when I read this uh, portion of the book of Acts, these passages that we just read today, um, it took me a while to kind of nail down what the center of the passage is. Um, there's a lot happening, right? Um, you have... Paul kind of doing some strange things like he gets a haircut and he uh, he travels from one church to the next. He's got some companions that are with him that he drops off in one place and he takes off and goes and does some other things Then he comes back and there's a dude who's preaching powerfully named Apollos, right? And at some point he uh, gets confronted by some other believers and then heads somewhere else and then Paul shows back up on the scene and there's some guys that don't appear to know Jesus, and then they get to know Jesus, and suddenly they start speaking in tongues. And that's the end of the passage. There's 12 of them. And it's like, holy smokes, what's going on? Um, as I continued my study um, with this portion of Scripture, I couldn't help, honestly, at some point, uh, to think of the Great Commission. And I think that's a good place for us to center in on. Uh, what's really happening here? in this passage, is a church is being planted in the city of Ephesus. And really, over the course of the next three sermons, the next three studies for us, we're going to look at all of the events that take place when this church in Ephesus gets planted. And so this is just part one of that. So as I began to look at it and then even think about the whole story in a broader sequence, um, I started thinking about the Great Commission. You find the Great Commission in uh, Matthew 28, um, verses 18 through 20. And, And the Great Commission is basically Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended back into heaven, right? Jesus is crucified, buried. He's in the tomb for three days. He walks out of that tomb fully alive, leaves it empty, which no other god and no other prophet of any other religion has ever done. So you think about that. Um, does that, spends a number of days with a lot of people who witness him alive. I think Paul says in Corinthians, uh, over 500 people witness this. That's a pretty large crowd. Um, and his final words before he ascends back up into heaven, right? To be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he'll come, return. Before he ascends there, he gives the Great Commission to his disciples, his final words. And those final words to his disciples could be summarized this way. Go and share the gospel with the lost. Evangelize them so that they can become disciples of Jesus. uh, And then continue teaching them at that point um, how to obediently follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Basically, um, it's a twofold commission: evangelize the lost, strengthen current believers um, with godly instruction. So I think of the Great Commission. I think of that twofold commission when I read this passage, uh, primarily because in this part of the story of Acts, what I see uh, is a group of normal, everyday believers just living out the Great Commission, right? Because when when Jesus gives those instructions you kind of start to ask what does this look like how do we do this and that's that's what's great about the book of acts is it's highly descriptive it's a story it's it's narrative and it gives us a bird's eye view into how the early believers lived out the great commission and this is one of those places where you kind of get to see that in a in a really kind of startling way at times and like i said even a little bit confusing you see the apostle paul you see uh, Priscilla and Aquila. You see Apollos. Personally, I think these names are wild. Name my daughter Priscilla um, or, or a son, Aquila or Apollos. I mean, Apollos sounds very manly, I guess. But uh, you see this group of believers and they're engaged in the advancement of the Great Commission, right? They're, they're engaged in the advancement of the gospel at what I would say is kind of a grassroots level, Okay. These guys aren't professionals necessarily like like we might think of when we think of the church today. These guys are just normal, average, everyday believers. And over the course of the next few weeks, as I said, uh, what's going to happen from their advancement of the Great Commission is a church is going to get planted in the city of Ephesus, and then a church in Corinth is going to get strengthened by the gospel. So Again, you see the Great Commission, right? The, the lost are getting saved, they're getting evangelized, and then those who are found, those who are followers of Jesus, are getting strengthened. That's what's taking place in our story. So I want you to think, just for a minute, before we dive into some of the nitty-gritty of the passage, how often do you think about your role in the advancement of the Great Commission? Right? How often do you think of your responsibility in advancing the gospel throughout our city or or throughout the world, right? How often do you think about sharing the gospel with the lost? How often do you engage and participate in that activity? How often uh, do you engage or participate in the activity of strengthening other believers by teaching the Bible, opening the Bible with other believers and helping to strengthen them in their journey? Maybe another way of thinking about it would be this, too. How often do you diminish your responsibility or your role? Um, Maybe you think that um, you're not talented enough or you're not well-spoken enough or um, something like that. You're just not good enough to be in this business of sharing the gospel with other people as well as sharing the Bible with other believers. Maybe you think you're too new of a Christian. Maybe that's where you're at. Um, maybe you think that you're too new to the faith to be making disciples. You think that you're, you're, you're too immature, maybe, to uh, proclaim the gospel, the lost, or to help somebody else understand the Bible. I mean, it is a, a pretty big deal to open the Bible and say, hey, brother or sister, let me sit down with you and let's dig in and see what's going on here. It is a big responsibility for sure. It's God's Word. So it can be intimidating, right? How often do you allow those emotions or those thoughts or those feelings to kind of make you tap out from advancing the Great Commission. The other question would be this, and I think this um, might be hard for some of us to hear, but I wonder how many of us in this room are just merely religious, right? You have the look of a believer, um, you have the language of a believer, um, but you're not really saved. You don't really know Jesus. You've never actually submitted to him or surrendered to him. Therefore, your heart is not alive. You're not on fire for God because he saved you. You're just going through the motions, maybe, because you have a look about you. Um, You see all of that in the text today. Now, the thing is, is, I think we often, when we think about this responsibility to share the gospel to uh, disciple other believers with the Bible open. Oftentimes we think about these things in, in a context that gives us excuses, right? We, we think about the Great Commission in terms of flashy evangelists, right? People like Billy Graham, maybe. That's, that's kind of his job. He's good at that. We should let him do that. Everybody has their own gifts, and he's obviously an evangelist, so I'm just going to let him share the gospel with the lost. Like, you see how the religious language gets in there and gives us almost like a religious, biblical excuse? And yet, the reality is the Great Commission is for all of us. There are people that are specially gifted like Billy Graham, and thank God for him. But that doesn't mean that you and I are let off the hook from our responsibility as believers. Um, you might think of practicing evangelism, as merely just inviting people to church so that your pastor can get them saved, right? Um, Or you might think of it in terms of giving money to evangelistic organizations to get the job done. And again, these things aren't wrong. All of these things are actually really good. Invite people to church, yes. Uh, Give money to evangelistic organizations, yes. Thank God for people like Billy Graham, yes. But those things become wrong when we use them for... Excuses to, to vindicate our, our lack of participation or involvement in the Great Commission. So I want you to think with me for a minute. Go to the text with me. Think with me for a minute about how the stage actually gets set for the advancement of the Great Commission in the city of Ephesus. So that's the first thing we kind of notice, verses 18 through 23, chapter 18. The stage gets set to plant in Ephesus, you might think of this like setting a table to eat a really good meal, right? There's some things that are going to happen first before the gospel gets planted there. And in this portion of the text, and again, we kind of surveyed this portion of text briefly uh, in, in our message last week. Um, but in this portion of the text, you see the Apostle Paul, he's staying in the city of Corinth in verse 18. And he's staying there just a little bit longer after his previous run-in with the religious Jews in that city. And after a really short time, it kind of seems like he heads over to a place called Century for a haircut. I don't understand why Luke tossed this in there, right? When you first read it, it's like, well, what? It's not like, as one commentator was saying, it's not like Luke, who's the author of Acts, gets into the habit of telling us what uh, uh, Paul ate for lunch, or, you know, what color socks he decided to wear. Or, you know, what kind of beard oil he decided to use. He doesn't tell us those details, but for some reason, right here, Luke tells us, yo, Paul went and got a haircut over in century. Wow, maybe the barber there was just really, really good at what he does. I don't know. What's going on here? As you do this study, um, and, you, and, you, and you kind of think your way through this, Uh, Most scholars or commentators kind of presume that the Apostle Paul is performing what's called a Nazarite vow. And this Nazarite vow, you could look this up in Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament. But this kind of a Nazarite vow uh, would be a um, kind of a period of thanksgiving, okay? He would choose not to cut his hair for quite a while. Um, And it was a sign every time he looked in the proverbial mirror of his shaggy old head, that, hey, I'm letting my hair get shaggy out of thanksgiving to God. And most scholars would say that he was doing this most likely out of thanksgiving to God for keeping him safe in Corinth. And that was last week's passage. God kept him safe. You might remember, God shows up and gives him that promise. You're not going to be harmed. And then, sure enough, Paul is not harmed. And so that's the thought of what's taking place here, is that he is performing this vow out of gratitude to God. It's, it's a visible reminder to him and to others around him of what God has done for him. Now, this would be similar to any of us um, doing what we do um, in some regard, whether that be showing up for church or Bible studies Um, It would even hone in a little bit more if we were to talk about what it looks like for a believer to fast. Because when we fast, we're, we're doing that so that we might hear from God. And we could do it because we're grateful to God for what he has done as well. And so it would be very similar in our lives. At the end of the day, what Paul was doing as he did this, is not only giving thanks to God, but he's actually, in some regard, visibly pronouncing to the world around him who he's following, who he belongs to. Because letting his hair get shaggy would have been a very visible thing that people would see. Uh, and the other side of it is when he got a haircut, people would notice that too, and they'd be like, yo, you got a haircut, what's wrong? I'm like, Patrick, why'd you cut your hair? You've been growing a lawn for so long, I don't know. That's right, Val? No, probably not. It looks good with lawn hair. I like it to keep it, okay? That kind of a visible thing would happen, and it would get people's attention, and they would ask, yo, why is your hair cut, or why did you let it grow so long? And Paul would have the opportunity then to say, well, here, here's why I'm doing this. It was a way of sharing your faith in in one regard, too. Now, I think, you know, as I thought about this, I was thinking about, you know, some of the passages in the Gospels where, you know, Jesus really gets on the religious people for practicing their religion in front of others, And I think that sometimes we begin to think that what Jesus is saying is, yo, your faith should be private. It should be done hidden. And I think we read that wrong. I think what Jesus is getting after is the motivation and the heart behind the thing. right? He basically says, it's the only reason you're doing this so that you get praise from people anyways. And you're not doing it because you want to get praise from God or because you want to praise God in what you're doing. You're doing this to get attention. And if that's why you're doing it, then that's all you're going to get. And good luck with that because it doesn't last eternally. Right? And so I think we just, we sometimes we read that, we misread it. We start thinking, oh, I've got I to be like really private, really secretive about my faith. And what Paul is doing here is kind of, I think, showing us, I think Luke is showing us by telling us the story about this visible thing that Paul did. In, in essence, he shared his faith by the way he lived his life. You could say that, Right? So I think it's definitely appropriate for the watching world to see us expressing our love for God in our religious performance. Think about that. That's appropriate, as so long as it's done with pure motives. Okay? You never know what kind of doors may be opened when the world sees you following God in such a countercultural, such a radical way. Now if you skip on down to verses 19 through 21, the story kind of progresses, right? The Apostle Paul arrives in Ephesus. It's his first time his feet touch the soil. He just steps into town, right? He gets there. And, and, and those verses actually tell us that Paul is received very well by the Jews in the synagogue. Now, I don't know if you caught that or when we were reading it, but it's actually a pretty fascinating thing to think about for just a moment, okay? He was received well by the Jews in the synagogue. Do you understand how rare of an exception to the norm this is? Most of the time when Paul stepped in the synagogue, he would be tolerated at best for a short period of time. And then typically thrown out, sometimes beaten, other times stoned. <laughs> Usually chased out of town, left for dead, so on and so forth. That's, that's the norm in the story. But in this case, he's received pretty well, right? Right? And they even invited him to stay a little bit longer. They're like, yo, why don't you stay a little bit longer? We want to hear you some more. Now, again, Luke doesn't tell us why, but all of the study that I found on this, most people are saying that it's probably because of that Nazarite vow. It's because he had not cut his hair yet, and visibly he was saying, this is how I'm worshiping God. And, and so that Nazarite vow that he was performing would have actually won him some brownie points with the highly mosaic, law abiding people in the synagogue. It's really interesting when you think about that because Paul would later say that, hey, I want to be all things to all people that I might win a few with the gospel. So he would say, when I'm with the Jew, I behave and act like the Jew. And when I'm with the Gentile, I behave and act like the Gentile. Now, to say that to both of those groups is, is, is very controversial, um, because the Jews had a very strict set of laws, and the Gentiles were looked like dirty scumbag outsiders, and Paul would behave like both when he was with them, which makes him seem a little bit wishy-washy, like... Paul, do you really know who you really are? Is there, is there a reason why you're dressing and eating and acting and drinking like the Jews over here? But then when you go over here, you're, you look a little bit dirty in, in the Jews' eyes. Over here, the Gentiles, like, is there something wrong with you? You lack integrity? But Paul would attach to that doctrine that I want to be all things to all people, that I might win a few. He would attach... Um, something to, it's kind of a qualifying statement. He would say, so long as I don't break the law of Christ. And the law of Christ hinges on this word love. Now, I could spend a long time unpacking love, right? Because our culture has taken the word love and made it into something that, that the Bible never intended it to mean, that God never intended it to mean. Um, so I just think that this instance here is like the beginning seeds of the Apostle Paul going, hey, look, something happened there. I was practicing the Nazarite vow, and the Jews accepted me. They actually wanted me to stick around a little bit longer. So I think it allows him later to learn from his experiences and then be able to say, hey, this is how you practice advancing the Great Commission. You learn the culture that you're trying to reach, and you step into that culture. You act, talk, behave, and look like that culture to the extent that you don't break God's serious laws. And that's how you... Do good mission i think that that's what began to teach paul how to do so here's the reality uh, you guys see me right if i have my sleeves up and if you know me i'm like covered in tattoos right i'm a biker do you know that when my wife and i first met i wasn't a biker i don't think i had any tattoos you know what i was does anybody know you know what i was when we first met you know what i look like anybody want to raise their hand and tell me what, what you remember heather is the only one that knows so after the gathering you should go talk to heather And she'll let you know, okay? No, I'll tell you. I won't keep you in suspense. I was a cowboy, okay? I wore a cowboy hat. I grew up on a farm. I grew up on horseback. I grew up around cows. I know how to dance country western like you wouldn't believe. I'm not bragging because I don't do it very often. My wife will tell you. Um, I used to teach country western dance lessons, okay? I can two-step and waltz and shuffle and Texas two-step and swing. Um, Yeah, now I just get out of breath and fall down, okay, because I'm old. <laughs> and when I'm at the gym, I just lift weights. I don't do the cardio, so my lungs are terrible. I smoke too I many cigars, yada, yada, yada. What's my point? <laughs> and part of me began to transform and change over the years. Number one, because I like riding a bike, right? But two, I began to see a culture that I really wanted to reach. And I wanted to look the part, I wanted to be able to talk the part. So part of me is really wired to be like a missionary. Am I really a biker deep down inside that's just been screaming to get out of the cowboy body? Maybe. I don't really know. <laughs> but I do see that that's part of what's taking place in the text here. I think Paul is just transforming and growing what's going on. So they invite him to stay around a little longer, and he's like, no, i I'm, i got to go. Okay? And he declines, which blows my mind. Like They invite him to stay. <laughs> They're not chasing him away. And he's like, no, I'm going to leave. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and he (laughs) promises to return as the Lord allows. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he just stay, right? I think, I think this is an indicator towards Paul's humility. That's what I think has taken place. I think this dude has been getting the snot kicked out of him so much up until this point in his ministry that humility is beginning to just reek on this guy. I think at the end of the day, Paul got to a point where he did not need to be the rock star anymore. And so I think he was more than happy to leave the ministry of the Great Commission in Ephesus in Priscilla and Aquila's hands. So I'm just going to leave it to them until the Lord brings me back to Ephesus. Once again, I think we can learn a lot from meditating on Paul's example of humility, his dependence upon the Lord, right? Now, if you look down at verses 22 through 23, uh, this whole section concludes with Paul just traveling to one place after the next. He's continuing to strengthen believers in other communities where he had previously ministered. And you can see the care and the concern, right? And you think about the personal sacrifice that it took for Paul to return to those communities just so that he can strengthen other believers. I think we can learn lessons from that. You know, you think about. Our call to the one another's in a church family to be members who care for each other, to be present, to show up, right? Think about, in our day and age, how easy it is to make phone calls or send text messages or visit people or follow up with other brothers and sisters who are members in a church family. But you can also think of all the excuses we make when it comes to actually doing that with those that we call brother and sister within the same church family. It doesn't take the same level of sacrifice or commitment to reach out to one another, to love each other. right? The question is, is does our ministry reflect that? Does our ministry here at the well reflect, in our membership especially, does it reflect the same desire and the same willingness to sacrifice for the good of other believers? Reflect that. Good question for us to ask. At the end of the day, um, Ephesus is now primed, right? The stage is now set for planting the gospel, and God is about to do something pretty crazy. He's about to use this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and then later Paul, when he gets back, to get the seeds planted for the church there. And I want to say this before we head on to the next point. We should never minimize the value or the potency of our own obedience and sacrifice when it comes to advancing the Great Commission, we should never minimize the value or the potency of our own obedience and sacrifice when it comes to advancing the gospel. The stage is now set, right, for the gospel to get planted in Ephesus, and it all starts with a uh, a Great Commission call to be about the business of strengthening other believers. That's where the story kind of takes us next. You look at verses. 24 through 26 of chapter 18, and, and we meet this dude named Apollos, okay? And, and Luke, again, author of the text, he's telling us that Apollos is from a place called Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is a place that basically rivaled the city of Athens as the center for the quest of, of knowledge, right? These two cities competed back and forth. No, we're more knowledgeable than you. No, we're more knowledgeable than you. Lots of Greek philosophy took place in these two cities, okay? Okay? Alexandria and Athens. You can do lots of study on um, where lots of philosophy flowed out of there. And Apollos came from there. Luke tells us that Apollos was, he was well-spoken, well-trained. He was knowledgeable in the Scriptures. He was a learner of God's ways. He was passionate about God's Word. He was an accurate and faithful teacher. These are things that Luke says about him as he describes him. And although he was a genuine believer, you might have picked up, right? He's a genuine believer because he's definitely preaching Jesus. Um, What you find out as you read the stories, you find out that he only knew of John's baptism. Now, that's a common theme. Shows up twice in the passages we read today because it shows up again a little bit further down when we look at the 12 people that Paul evangelized at the end of the text. And so this thing in Ephesus um, where they only knew of John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, that was something that uh, had to get cracked through. It was kind of like a religious type thing. You think about that in terms of some of, you know, um, the U.S. here, when you think about starting churches in communities, um, there's a lot of churches in a lot of communities, a lot of times, right? So there's a lot of religious language. I mean, it was, it was popular in America for, for, what, a couple hundred years at least for uh, all of us to call ourselves Christians because we're part of a quote-unquote Christian nation. And the reality is, are we a Christian nation in the biblical sense of the word? Or are we a Christian nation in terms of a cultural sense of the word, right? And so Ephesus had this kind of religious feel. They knew of John the Baptist's baptism. um, And Apollos somehow, it seems like, because he came from um, Alexandria I think that when the disciples and when Christians were dispersed, I think he must have heard the gospel to to an extent and must have come to know Jesus. I think he was actually a believer. And on top of that, he was a captivating preacher, right? He's in Ephesus, he's preaching, but he's missing something in his theological quiver. And I think that since Luke says, hey, all he knew was the baptism of John the Baptist, then the thing that he must have been missing in his theological quiver as an arrow, right, to shoot... The thing that he must have been missing probably had something to do with baptism. Probably believer's baptism, right? Uh, And and a lot of us ask, why should I be baptized? Well, because Jesus commanded it, number one. Um, Another good reason is because Jesus was baptized too. That's a really good reason. And another reason is because in the book of Acts, you see people, when they become believers, they get baptized. And so it could be something to do with baptism, which could also tie to an assurance of salvation, right? Assurance of salvation is a pretty big issue among many Western Americans today. because. There has been this free will doctrine that has been taught, not just in Western America, but we've really picked up on it. And that free will doctrine, there's truth in it, but it's been twisted so far and stretched so far that it, it takes away any assurance that you're saved for some people. And you walk around afraid all day long that you might commit some egregious sin today and lose your salvation, and then you're going to go get re-saved. And hopefully, hopefully, that cosmic eraser of the Holy Spirit will write your name back in the book. Can you imagine being the Holy Spirit? Oh, I have to erase Christie out today. Can't believe she did that. Oh, wait a minute. No, she just repented. Okay, I put her back in. Sheet. Okay, oh, 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 she, she. Now, who, who even knows where the line is? Like You can't make a good argument, scripturally speaking, of what the good line is. So, that could have been part of it with Apollos too. Um, at the end of the day, here's what happened. Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside, right? And they straighten him out a little. They help him to understand the way of God more accurately according to verse 26. Now, here's the fascinating thing. If you were to do a little bit of a study on Priscilla and Aquila when their names pop up, you'll find that Luke mentions them roughly four times, and you'll find later that Paul mentions them roughly four times. Both of them together follow the kind of the same pattern. First time mentioned, it's Aquila, the husband, And Priscilla, the wife. And then three times after that, every time, it's Priscilla the wife, and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Why did that change? Language means something, right? And the way that we write means something. There it wasn't just nonchalantly written. And so it's fascinating when you think about that. And I think what this points to is that Priscilla, the wife was most likely on the leading edge of helping Apollos to grow up a little bit, theologically speaking. Think about that. Her name is listed first. Now, it doesn't appear that she did this without her husband Aquila being fully present as well as fully supportive. So that, to me, fulfills this biblical precedent of male headship in marriage. But I think it's also worth noting this too, that she also corrected and strengthened Apollos privately. This means that she didn't correct him in public. As he's speaking, she wasn't like, yo, bro, that's wrong. She didn't do that. She waited until that was over, and they drew him aside privately and corrected him so that he wouldn't be publicly shamed. And I think that that's, there's something to that. Uh, there's probably many of us here who have undergone public shaming from the opposite sex, right? Anybody want to raise hands and agree? I'm sure that most of us have experienced that one way or the other. Public shaming from the opposite sex has a really weird psychological effect on us. And it does. It creates barriers inside of us. And so I just love the fact that, that God in his sovereignty, right, with Priscilla and Aquila, moved them to do this in a private manner so as not to injure Apollos. I would, I, I would use this also for a moment to challenge our guys in the room. Okay. Um, even if you've experienced some pretty tough things, and I, I think I could also ch- challenge the women, too, but I really want to challenge the guys for a moment, like, how willing and receptive are you to the ladies in our church family coming to you with biblical correction? Okay. How willing would you be? Now, I would say that I have not always been that willing. Um, I grew up very traditional, which is some of the traditional values, I think, are great and good. But there's also a dark side to those things. Um, And so I've grown in this over the years. um, But I would say, uh, I think I would probably be seriously much more immature, okay? I'd be missing a lot, spiritually speaking, if it weren't for the courage of a lot of godly women in my life. Godly women in this church over the years who have spoken to my life, challenged and corrected. So I would just challenge any of the men, like, man, check your heart in regards to that. But I would also challenge our women. I don't have that in my notes, but in the moment I was, think, I was just thinking that, yeah, you know what, there could be a good challenge here too. Like, ladies, um, be careful about how you challenge, right? But also don't shrink back from challenging. Um, and if you're not married, you know, take, take another guy or another woman with you um, and, and do that if you need to challenge somebody of the opposite sex. And make sure that you're doing that in appropriate spaces too. Um, I think it's all about, I think it all comes back to humility, or I think it comes back to And it comes back to tone of voice. It comes back to bodily posture. All those things that are good for relationships are so very important. At the end of the day, big idea here, right? Um, God used Priscilla and Aquila to strengthen another believer, namely this dude named Apollos. Now, here's the thing. The scriptures are, are full, full of instructions about our responsibility to strengthen other believers and not to weaken them, but not to mention that is the second part of the Great Commission, I think. So I'm going to take a real brief survey. I have a lot of passages. I'm going to read through them. I'm going to run through them fast because we're, we're getting short on time. Um, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. These are passages that really support this idea that we are to be about the ministry of strengthening other believers. It's a responsibility we have as believers. Okay, so here's just a few. Ephesians 4, 1-3, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And with all what? Humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, I think the one that we usually forget is that word patience. Do you know how long it took you to get to where you're at today, spiritually speaking? Just asking do you know there's areas of your life that are still a jacked up mess that other people just probably don't see? Yeah, Same kind of patience that God has with you. You should probably have that with others too, you know. Um, God's very patient. We, we have a tendency to sometimes be like, oh, God, thank you for being so patient with me. And I expect perfection out of you, right? I expect you to grow really, really fast. Patience is a, is a pretty big, important piece of this, I think. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Not the pastor's job, it's the saints, the members' job, right? Do that. It's it's pastors' and leaders' jobs to equip members for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why? Uh, uh, He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children. I love it when the Apostle Paul calls us kids, little children. I want you to stop being tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It was on, he says, rather speaking the truth in love. This is what Priscilla and Aquila did. They spoke the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Briefly, just a couple more. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put falsehood away, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We belong to each other. Speak the truth to each other in love. Verse 29 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Not tearing down, right? As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Look at verse 32 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, I, how many times are you supposed to forgive? Is it 70 times seven? You know, the rubber really meets the road for that when you're in marriage, right? Uh, Christy, I don't know how many times you've had to forgive me, but I'm sure it's more, more than 490. I think that's what 70 times seven is. You're the math genius, right? 70 times seven, 490 times. Have you kept track? No, no, because you lose track, right? The idea behind that is, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. That's how many times you should forgive. Well, then you start asking really dumb questions like all religious people do. Well, what kind of forgiveness? Like, what, should I forgive them that many times for this kind of sin? Jesus doesn't qualify. Because this is the kind of forgiveness you should forgive them with. The same kind of forgiveness that God the Father gives us. It's an infinite amount of forgiveness. That's why, it's, that's why our Father is so gracious. Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Hey, look, men... I don't think I find this issue among women typically in the church, but men, I don't know. Men are a different breed. Locker room talk, uh, filthy talk, coarse joking, those kinds of things. Happens more among the men, I think. Now, again, I don't hang out with a lot of women, okay? Not a lot. I know ladies, but I don't hang out in crowds of women. I hang out in crowds of dudes. And I just know this is this is probably good for us to hear this. We probably need to clean ourselves up a little bit. It comes to our language. It says, those things are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Um, let me flip down. I'm going to flip all the way down to a Philippians 4, 2 through 5. I take that back. I'm going to go Philippians three seventeen through 18 for the guys in the back, if you can find that slide next. I'm going to skip a couple. Um, Philippians three seventeen through 18. It says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I put that in there because... I, Paul says that, and I've always thought, you know, believers should be able to look at one another and say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. I want to be an example to you. Therefore, you can follow my example. How many people can you do that to? How many people can you do that with? And you can look at and say, hey, look, follow my example. Let's go. Let's follow Jesus together. We're going to become more like Jesus as we go. I've got a lot of other passages that I, that I put in here. I'm going to skip past them because our time is just short. Um, you might look up the notes um, and, and skim through some of the other passages this is just a short list. There, there's a lot of instructions in scriptures. Um, they, off, they, they usually call them the, the one another's. And these passages encourage us to be about the ministry of sacrificially investing our lives into other believers around us. So that together we can become more like Jesus. So I want you to think about this. Back to the story in Acts here. Can you imagine Apollos' future ministry with me for a moment? After Priscilla and Aquila step in and correct him. Just imagine his future ministry. Now now imagine what his future ministry and future relationship with Jesus would have looked like had Priscilla and Aquila not had the courage to step in there, to sit down with him, and to instruct him further in the ways of God. Imagine that. We all have a responsibility to step in obediently in other people's lives. With the word of God open, say, hey, Brother or sister, let me strengthen you. Let me encourage you. And let me correct you a little bit, because I think I see a little bit of error here in the way that you're walking. Um, Let me step in with the Bible and do that. That's what we should do for all of us as members of the body. Now, in this case, think about, I'm going to move my microphone as I'm talking, because I'm wondering if that's half the issue of what's going on. there? Maybe it'll be better. Um, I don't know if you guys can hear, but I can hear all sorts of stuff going on. Think about the ripple effects of of what takes place here, right? Um, Verses 27 through 28 give us the ripple effects of Priscilla and Aquila's investment in Apollos' life. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, I don't think they could have ever known in a million years how their obedient investment in Apollos would ripple all the way back to Corinth, right? All the way back to Corinth where they had just come from. But that's exactly what happens in the story apollos takes his new understanding all the way back to corinth where he i would say arguably gets better results than the apostle paul did remember the apostle paul got chased out of town basically didn't get harmed he basically got pushed out of town by the jews but for apollos um he gets there and the text tells us luke tells us that he powerfully refuted the jews in public showing by the scriptures that the christ was jesus now you'll find later if you read the books of First and Second Corinthians that Apollos remained there as one of the pastors, one of the leaders. And the Corinthians had their own issues. They, some of them thought that Paul was just this awesome rock star and others of them thought, no, Apollos is this awesome rock star. And Paul writes them and he goes, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> Neither one of us are that special. We're just both instruments used by God, right? So Apollos apparently stays there. That powerful ministry of Apollos in Corinth, you think about it, it stood on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul, because Paul had faithfully planted there. But it also stood on the shoulders of the obedient investment of Priscilla and Aquila. You can never know, never know what kind of ripples or waves your obedient investment will make in others' lives. Think about the ripples that continue out to the end of our text now, right? Apostle Paul shows back up in, in Ephesus and you got some religious dudes who are getting evangelized, right? Verses one through seven of chapter nineteen. I'm gonna to try to summarize briefly and quickly. Uh, Paul finds these guys, there's twelve of them. Ask them, like, do you guys know the Holy Spirit? And they're like, Yo, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. I think that's shorthand for like we haven't heard about the Holy we've heard of the Holy Spirit, but what do you mean we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? Um, because everybody had heard about the Holy Spirit at that point. It's more of a it's more of a different kind of a question. Um, if you read different translations of the Bible, you'll see that that answer um, written a little bit differently each time. So it's not that they hadn't actually heard of the Holy Spirit. They're just like, wow, yeah, we've heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you asking us about this for? So he moves on. He's like, well, what were you baptized into? And, and they're like, well, we're baptized in the baptism of John, John the Baptist. Uh, then Paul uses that as a jumping off point to then share the gospel. He goes, oh, well, John the Baptist's baptism... That was meant to point us to Jesus, right? Repentance and faith in Christ. So he literally shares the gospel with these 12 people, these 12 guys. And the text tells us at the very end, what happens? When he lays his hands on them, they get baptized, they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now why? Why does that happen? Um, There's all sorts of different ideas about this. I'm going to give you my best shot of this and get us out of here in less than a total hour, okay? (laughs) Okay. Why tons? Why prophesying? Why did this episode so closely mirror other Pentecostal experiences throughout the book of Acts? Like it, There are some who teach that receiving the Spirit of God is something that happens after being saved. That you should get saved first, and then you should pursue the Holy Spirit so that He might look on you kindly enough to come and fill you with His presence. Kind of the way it goes. Um, is that really the way it goes? Or do you get the Holy Spirit when you get saved? I would argue, from my studying Scripture... That the Holy Spirit is given at the moment of salvation. Here's the reason why. Uh, We often say when you get saved, you're asking Jesus to come live in your heart. In that sense, you're asking the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit to take up residence in your life. It's not like Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to go live in Joe's heart. Spirit, why don't you wait for a while? I'm going to get the place cleaned up first. And then you can come over. You and I can do a little bit more. We'll get a table set. Then we'll invite the Father over for dinner. It doesn't go that way. The Spirit is the one who gives the heart. The brand new heart he's the one who inhabits that heart immediately upon the moment of salvation and in that he then saves you makes you new and then empowers you enables you to follow god and so i believe that's the truth of what happens in salvation you receive the spirit right there but you're going to ask what happened in the book of acts then Why do we see this outpouring of the Holy Spirit happen a few times? There's other passages, okay? So let me briefly run through them. Acts 2, 1 through 13. That's the first time you see this weird Holy Spirit outpouring and speaking in tongues happen. This happens in the very early book of Acts. These are the original disciples. They receive the Spirit in Jerusalem. That's important. They receive Him in Jerusalem, they speak in tongues. That one, that episode, seems to be the inaugural moment. It's the very first time when the Spirit is poured out. And the nations at that point hear the gospel of Jesus, crucified, risen, returning, in a very miraculous way, in their own languages. That's why speaking in tongues took place there. But you need to remember that it happened in Jerusalem. That's very important. Look at Acts chapter 8, right? 14 through 24, second time you see it happening. Uh, Here you find a story of Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. This is presumably the same way the disciples did it at the first Pentecost in Acts 2. And what this is is confirmation that the gospel is now moving, listen, from Jerusalem to Samaria. Is anybody catching the, the connection here to Acts 1 8? Right? Because Acts 1 8, Jesus says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and where? Lost all of you. Samaria, thank you. Okay. Oh, please don't be sleeping. And then to the ends of the earth. That's the natural movement of the gospel that's going to take place throughout the book of Acts. So I think what's taking place here is it starts in Jerusalem. Now you have one that takes place in Samaria. The next one you see is in Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Cornelius. He's an Italian prison guard, receives the Holy Spirit along with his entire household. They get baptized, they get saved. I speak in tongues. Seems like this is confirmation that salvation is not just for the Jew. It's not just for the Samaritan, but it's also for the Gentile outsider. And so now it's moving to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the way the gospel was going to move. Finally, you have this text in front of us. You go, well, he already proved that it's moving in the the way that God said it was going to move. Why do we have this one? Well, I think this one is pretty, it's not hard, really, when you think about it in context, because context is everything, right? What's happening in the context of what we're reading? Aren't there two groups of people, so to speak, that have this issue with John's baptism, right? Apollos only knew John's baptism. And then you have 12 disciples who only knew John's baptism. I think what's going on here is the Spirit is being mo- uh, poured out at the moment of salvation uh, in the same way as the others. And it's confirming this. Belief in John's baptism alone is not enough for salvation. That's the point, I think. No, this, let me say it another way. No religious belief will save you except one thing. Trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. These men had previously trusted in their religious knowledge, their religious understanding, their religious behaviors. They trusted in their religious understanding of John's baptism. They had not trusted in Jesus. And so Paul preaches Jesus to them, and these religious lost people get saved. Now, usually we don't think of religious people as lost people, right? Now, I don't want us to be misinformed either. Um, Tons and prophecy are not evidence of salvation. There are some that teach that. That's ludicrous, not like the rapper. Ludicrous. Ludicrous, stupid. They're not evidence of salvation. They're not evidence, I don't believe, of a secondary experience after salvation whereby we get filled with the Spirit and babble in other languages that you don't understand. Tons and prophecy that we see here are the kind of evidencing gifts that were needed in that moment, for that season, in the church, as it was being established throughout that reason, region, and as the canon of Scripture was being completed. So in short, tongues and prophecy, in this time period, they acted like a sign uh, during the book of Acts, and they confirmed the, the advancement of the gospel,? Okay? Uh, th- they confirmed and advanced the work of the great commission. Today, today, the evidence of salvation. With the evidence of God's Spirit living in you, I think is simply the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit should be centered around the ability to love just like Jesus did. You look at 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, and you'll get a good survey of all of this, even with tons included. So I'm not, here's what I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that tons or prophecy have ceased. I don't believe that from Scripture. I think that they are spiritual gifts today, not sign gifts like they were then. There was a transition. Those two acted as sign gifts to prove the gospel was moving. Today, I believe that they are spiritual gifts that are given throughout the church to strengthen the church. But they ceased to exist in the way that they did then. This all makes sense. A lot of information, isn't it? Who would have thought, right, as you read this passage, that all of this was in there? What's the point at the end of the day? I think this is the point at the end of the day the gospel is moving the gospel is being planted in ephesus and all of these things are taking place paul gets his hair cut visible sign that he's following god opens the doors for ministry Apollo shows up and starts preaching he's a pretty gifted dude priscilla and aquila they step in and correct him a little bit paul comes back hangs out with these 12 disciples who think they're saved, but they're really not saved, okay? And then he gets them saved, and then they start speaking in tongues. The whole idea here that there's confirmation that the gospel is moving forward. At the end of the day, the advancement of the gospel is what it means to advance the Great Commission. The gospel is the point of the Great Commission. The point of the gospel is Jesus. And so if there was one final question I think I would ask us as we close it's this. If you and I see the gospel of Jesus Christ being planted in Ephesus in this way, in this study, then the question for each of us is this. Has Jesus been planted in your heart? Has he been planted there? Has he taken up residence inside of you? The reality is the gospel of Jesus is this. You've heard it already, I think. Um, The gospel of Jesus is this. You and I, we are sinful beyond our wildest imaginations, really. And we are filthy and we're rebellious and we turn away from God every chance we get. Even as believers, we do this. And yet God in his mercy and in his grace had this plan from before the foundations of the earth, send his son to come to be brutalized by a cross and to die in your place and my place so that we might by trusting in him, come to know God the Father, receive the spirit at the moment of salvation and then walk forward with his strength and becoming more like Jesus, as well as in his strength, sharing Jesus with others. Like, that's the story. The question is, is is there any part of your heart that Jesus has not been planted in? Are there some places in your heart that you've not allowed him into? Some places of struggle or unbelief inside of you that need to be dealt with? Um, the Holy Spirit is always available come and minister to you in those ways, whether that be areas where you need to be convicted of your own sin, where you need to confess and repent and turn away, or areas of your heart that have been wounded um, where you need healing maybe areas of your heart where you have grown calloused or cold to God, maybe areas of your heart where you really have just been religious and there is no spirit in your heart, right and you need a new heart, and you need to surrender to Jesus You could be in any one of those places and the one thing i know is that the holy spirit is available to minister to you in those ways and one of the ways that we do that is in our closing time which i'm going to let michael explain here in just a a few moments i just want to encourage you though um, our closing time is meant to be a time where the spirit would come and minister to you as you look to the cross and the empty tomb and be ministered to through that and as your heart is then turned to exalt and magnify the name of Jesus. Let Jesus be planted in your heart, either for the first time today or to an even deeper degree. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help this morning. I pray that you would remain and continue helping us as we close our time together. Thank you for this picture of what it looks like when you come, plant yourself in a community Uh, through the work, through the lives of your people. I pray, God, that you would plant yourself even more in us today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. (laughs) amen.